0: thought about doing a little bit of whiteboard work tonight, but I think I'll just stand down here and finish out this section in Matthew, the 16th chapter, because uh, we began that this morning in kind of just a verse-by-verse fashion, and I want to do that again this evening. So I'm going to invite you along with me to uh, Matthew, the 16th chapter, and I'm going to review just momentarily what we discussed this morning but then also hopefully discuss the rest of this little section that goes down to about verse 19. Now as you recall, Jesus has taken his apostles to the most northern limits of the land of Palestine, right at the base of Mount Hermon, to a very paganistic area that had long been pagan, to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was the ancient city of Dan that we find in the Old Testament. An area that had always struggled with Baal worship and false worship. And in Jesus' day, this same thing was going on. There was much false worship. Into this environment, Jesus takes his apostles and he elicits from them his identity. He wants them to make for sure that they are willing to state who he is. And so he does that in a very interesting way. He asks them what the word on the street is. Who are people saying that I am? And as I mentioned this morning, after about three years, there were a lot of opinions. Some thought he was an Old Testament prophet. Some thought he was the one that would bring in or harbinger to the Messiah. But then Jesus turns to his own, and he says, But who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? In other words, who do you say that I am? What is your conviction about me? And as I mentioned this morning... That indeed really is the essence of our study. Because in reality, it matters, but it doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks. The rest of the world will do what the rest of the world wants to do. And while we try to convert the rest of the world, we are indeed in need of converting ourselves before we try to convert the world. And so Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And it is, of course, at that moment that we almost see Peter leaping off of maybe the rock he was setting on and saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now I want to analyze that. We've already analyzed what it means to be the Christ. You know, Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah. The same Greek concept of Christos is the same as the Hebrew Messiah. But the Messiah means the anointed one. It means the one who had in the Old Testament the role of prophet, priest, or king. And Jesus, of course, today is our prophet, our priest, our king. He is our messenger. He is our mediator. He is our monarch. He is the one that supersedes all other. And that's really, again, what Peter is acknowledging when he says, you are the Christ. The Old Testament had pointed toward Jesus, toward the Christ, the anointed one. Pointed to, to to the kingdom that he would bring in. In fact, Daniel chapter 244 prophesies that there would come a kingdom that would never be destroyed. And John the Baptist and Jesus had said, the kingdom is very near. It's at hand. And so the Jews had long looked for a Messiah. Now, they misunderstood. They thought in many ways that Jesus, or shall we say the Messiah, would be a political figure. Jesus was none of that. Jesus came, of course, preaching a gospel of the heart and a gospel of a relationship with God, not a conquering gospel that would go into all the world and make a territory of physical nations. But Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that they had longed for, and if he is not the Messiah, then, of course, we know of no other. But Jesus, of course, makes this statement. He says, blessed are you now Peter has said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And now Peter is going to receive his own blessing. Now before I look at that blessing, though, when Peter uh, Peter says, rather, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, let me just for a moment focus upon that concept of the Son of the living God. You know, when we think of a son, we think of offspring. And, of course, Jesus is not the offspring of God the Father. He was not a created being. In fact, Colossians 1 tells us that all things were created by Christ. Of course, in his pre-incarnate state. So what then is Jesus getting at when he says, or Peter is getting at when he says, uh, you know, the Son of God? Well, what is a Son? Well, a Son is one who bears the likeness of his Father. A Son is indeed one who bears the similarities and character and nature of the Father. You know, in Africa and in other nations that I go to, we use Matthew 16 so many times because it is the go-to passage to demonstrate not only the authority of Jesus, but also to demonstrate the promise of the church that Jesus was going to build. And so it's a great passage to go to to demonstrate that Jesus did not come to develop denominations. He came to start or to begin His church. He is the builder of His church. But one of the things we say over in Africa is we say, you know, we're white men, we're what they call Mzungu. And that's a little bit of a uh, derogatory phrase but it's used in jest. And we'll say, you know, we are Mzungu. And I'll say, I have a son in America and you already know something about my son. And they'll say, I've never met your son. And I'll say, no, but you know something about him. First of all, you know that he's human. Well, maybe, sometimes, when he acts well. But you know he's human. Second of all, you know that likely he is a white boy. He is a Mazungu. And also you understand that he has many of the same characteristics. Even though you've never seen him, you can look at your child and know that your children have your characteristics. And so it's natural that he's going to have some of my characteristics. Well, I think this begins to hint then at what Peter is speaking of when he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, Jesus was deity. Now, Jesus is not God the Father. And God the Father is not God the Son nor the Holy Spirit. But they all have characteristics of similarity. They have the same stuff, if you will. So when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he is basically confessing the deity. He's confessing the heavenly nature of Jesus. Now that's very significant because that was really the big question. Who is Jesus? Who is this individual? And of course, even today in philosophical uh, circles, the question is, who is Jesus? Who was he? And this morning we talked about, you know, the various opinions that you'll find on the street about philosopher and enlightened one and teacher and all these other things. Well, Peter nails it when he says, you have the same characteristics as God. You know, in John 14, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father." You remember the apostles on that occasion came to Jesus and they say, Jesus, show us the Father. Show us what God is like. You know, no man has ever seen God, so show us God. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. And, of course, that was, again, the thing that got Jesus into so much trouble because he claimed to be equal with God. Now, I could talk a long time about this idea of sonship, too, because today sometimes sonship carries, shall we say, a diminutive sort of position, In the Jewish era, in the Jewish times, one son had the same authority as his father. In fact, you remember that parable that Jesus gives about the vineyard and the workers in the vineyard? And it's time to collect the goods from the vineyard. And so he begins to send his servants, the owner does. And then pretty soon all those servants are killed and run off. And then he says, I've got one more person that I'll send. I'm going to send my son. And surely they will reverence him. You see, that son carried the authority of the father. And so, when Peter says, You are the Christ, the son of the living God, not a dead God, not an idol like there was all around them, but a living God, Peter is saying, You have the very characteristics and you have the essence of deity. And so, Jesus, then, I think, is pleased with that. Because, first of all, Peter's right. But second of all, that's the very thing that Jesus was trying to demonstrate and show the people, his apostles first of all, through his miracles. The miracles were designed to confirm the word. They were not for his own aggrandizement. They were not so he would be some great person that would get mega followings. They were designed to prove and confirm the word. And so Peter understood. He had obviously got the picture to some degree. Though human and though weak in many ways, like we are, Peter understood the nature of God. He had seen Jesus. And you know what? Well, this is an aside, and I want to get on through the technical part of this study. But you know, we can see God tonight through Jesus. And we can see God tonight through Jesus. Well, how do we do that? Through Jesus' words. When we look at how Jesus interacted with people, when we look at how Jesus spoke, when we see what Jesus stood for, when we see what Jesus said, We come away with a picture, a clear picture of God Himself. And I think that's so wonderful because the Creator of the universe, while He gives us so many secondary ways to see Him, while He gives us general revelation, He gives us the clearest picture, specific revelation in His Word. So, how does Jesus respond then to this confession that Peter's made? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, your deity. Well, you know, it's very important how he responds. Because Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Now, if you're using a more updated translation, it might be something like Simon, son of John. Now, notice the contrast there. First of all, Jesus says, blessed are you, son of John. Now, the word blessed there, by the way, is the same word that's found in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 13, where there the Beatitudes are given. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's the same Greek word. And so when Jesus is pronouncing a blessing upon Peter, he's really giving Peter a compliment, really a pat on the back. But notice what he does. He's not putting Peter down now, but he says, Peter, you're blessed, but you are the son of John. Now contrast that to what Jesus was. Peter had confessed Jesus as deity. Jesus now professes Simon Peter as humanity. Now, that's so important because, you see, we are not God. The authority that we give give and yield to, rather, comes from God. We are not our own authority. And even though there are religions in the world, in fact, one major religion that is based out of Rome, that looks to Peter as the authority of the church, nothing could be further from the truth. Because Jesus here acknowledges Peter, acknowledges the statement, gives him kudos, if you will. But he says, Peter, you are a human. You are fallible. You are the son of John. But now Jesus does make a play in the Greek upon his name. You know, Jesus was, uh, I think, an individual who obviously knew the language of his time and sometimes could make plays on words. In fact, sometimes, even when you read the scriptures, there's a little bit of humor uh, you know, sort of woven into the text. But I think this is one of those times where really we have what we might call a play on words or a pun. Now, not a funny pun in the sense of that we might make puns today, but let's analyze this because this is very important. You know, back home I have a lot of friends who are Catholic and a lot of friends who look to Peter as the first pope and the first papa of the church, the head of the church, the foundation of the church. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I was with Ronnie Wade over in Rome, and we toured the Vatican, and we even saw the Pope. He came by in his little Pope mobile, and he went up and down the, the aisle, and we were from here to Terry from him, and could almost reach out, and almost feel the blessing, and I'm not making fun of that. My, my, my friends in, in, uh, you know, in, in Kansas City, who, many of whom are Catholic, uh, you know, I respect them. They're great people, but they look to the Pope as uh, you know, the final authority. And the claim is is that Peter was that authority because the claim is is that Jesus placed upon Peter uh, the church and built upon Peter uh, on this rock, Peter, the great institution of the church. Well, is that the truth? Well, again, notice from the beginning the contrast. Jesus is deity. Jesus is the Son of God, but Peter is humanity. Now, would Jesus build his church? Would Jesus build his kingdom on humanity, I don't think so, because the entire uh, history of humanity is really a pretty disappointing history. From time immemorial, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, God would set something straight, and men would mess it up. Right on back to the Garden of Eden. So I think already we're seeing a bit of a problem if we say that you know Peter is going to be as human, the head of a spiritual body, the one that Jesus would die for. Secondarily, of course, Peter did not die for the church, did he? Christ died for the church. So what then is, does this next section mean when, Peter, when Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he says, And I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, you know, Jesus here speaks of Peter, and then he speaks of rock. Now, obviously, Jesus is going to build his church on something. You know, Terry and I were talking earlier in the the week, yesterday or today, I can't remember, about foundations. Foundations are so incredibly important. Digging down and having a foundation. And obviously, the best foundation, this seems to me, would be on bedrock. In fact, in Matthew 7, Jesus taught about the man who built on the sand versus the man who built on the rock. And of course, the illustration there is, are you going to build upon Jesus' words, and are you going to do them or not? But the point is, is that any structure that's going to stand the test of time has to be built on something solid. Well, Jesus here says, you know, Peter, you have confessed me as the Son of God. He says, I am going to build my church upon that rock. Now, you know, when we look at the name of Peter, The thing that confuses folks sometimes is that Peter's name does mean rock. Petros. It's a male, masculine noun, and it means a stone. Now, when Jesus says, Peter, you are a rock, a stone, a little rock, if you will, he's not putting Peter down. Peter, indeed, would have his ups and downs, but Peter was going to be a great spokesperson, would he not, for the church in fact, in Acts chapter 2, Peter is going to be the one who delivers the main sermon on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 10, he's going to be the one who takes the gospel to the Gentiles in the household of Cornelius for the first time. So when Jesus says, blessed are you, uh, Simon Peter, or he says, you are Peter, or you're a little rock, he's not putting him down. But he's making a contrast. He says, Peter, you are a little rock. But then he changes the word. And he says, and upon this rock, and now he changes it from Petros, which is a, again, a masculine noun, which means a little stone, to the word Petra. Petra is a feminine noun. And it is something that means a huge, massive outcropping, a bedrock, if you will. So indeed, there's two different words, there's two different concepts being woven together there in a pond, Yes, there's a play upon Petros and Petra, but Jesus is not saying, I'm going to build my church upon you, Peter. He's saying, I'm going to build it on something much more substantial than a human being, much more strong than a son of John. I'm going to build it on the fact that I am the son of God. You see, the idea of Petra there, the rock, the bedrock, surely must, at least in some way, go back to that confession that Peter made. So Jesus is going to build his church, what? Upon Peter, upon a man, no. Upon the fact, upon that bedrock truth, that massive outcropping that would never be destroyed, that he was the son of God. Now that's significant. Because if Jesus built his church on anything else, and if Jesus is not the son of God, then the church is no different than any other organization. If the church is not built upon Jesus, If it does not go back to his word as the authority, if it does not look to him for the practices and the things in the church, then it is no different than a man-made institution. And, of course, we know that the church prophesied from old, old was to be something that God brought to this world. It was to be a divine institution. It was planned in the mind of God. Jesus came and died for the church. He gave his body and blood for the church. Surely it is built on something, founded upon something more substantial and more sure than simply a human like Peter or any human, no matter how perfect he might seem to be, rather than upon the truth of God's son, Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says, I will build my church, he's looking in the future. Now, you know, at this point in time, Jesus had not built his church. Jesus had not erected his his church or his uh, called out people. The word church comes from a Greek word that means the called out. And initially, the word church or ecclesia as we sometimes call it in English was in reference to a political body or citizens who would be called out of their homes for a political purpose. But, of course, when we think of it spiritually, it is indeed that we are called into our from our homes into assembly, and we can use the word church in that way. But it's the idea, I think spiritually speaking, of those who have been called out of sin. You know, we are called by the gospel. We are called by the message that touches our heart about Jesus Christ dying for our sins. And we're called out of a world of sin. And we're brought into the glorious sunlight of God's Son, Jesus Christ, through the gospel and through obedience to the gospel. When we are baptized for the remission of our sins, we become part of that church that is so evident in the New Testament. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter again preached and they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And then in Acts chapter 2 verse 47, it says that the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. How were they being saved? Through baptism. They were being saved by a change of life, by repentance, and by baptism. And then what they do after that? Well, Acts 2 verse 42 says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Having been inspired by the Holy Spirit, the apostles then began to lay down those doctrinal truths that came from heaven itself. And so you see, when we're talking about the church, when we're talking about the foundational premise of what God's institution was built upon, surely, undoubtedly... He is not saying that he's going to build this on a man. Every human institution has its foibles; It has its Achilles heel. Every human institution will come and go. No human institution, whether it be a country or whether it be a business, will ultimately stand forever. But the kingdom of God will stand forever. It is an eternal kingdom. It is a kingdom that was again prophesied and made in God's mind and then brought to the world by his prophets and ultimately by his son, Jesus Christ. And so then Jesus says, blessed are you, you're a rock, you're a, you're a small rock, but I'm going to build my church on this massive outcropping of rock, this confession that I am the son of God. And then he says, I'll build my church and even the gates of Hades Will not prevail against it. Now, if you're using the old King James version, which is fine, it has some uh, little quirks about it. It uses the word hell. It says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And of course, when we think of hell, we think of uh, damnation. We think of fire and brimstone. We think of you know those passages of eternal punishment. But the word here in the Greek is not hell as we think of it. It is Hades. And the Hadean realm or the word Hades refers to where the dead go after they die. The Hadean realm. And of course if you look at Luke 16 and this is quite another study but you'll find of course that Hadean realm uh, in that picture of the rich man and Lazarus divided into paradise and then torment. Well Jesus says, you know, I'm going to build my church and even the gates of the Hadean realm will not prevail against it. Now, what's Jesus talking about? You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's really predicting his resurrection. He's predicting his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Because you see, just in a few short months, Jesus is going to make that long trek from up there in Galilee, down the road, up the road to Calvary, and there he's going to give his life. He's going to shed his blood for me and you. And then he's going to go down in that Hadean realm as he is buried in the tomb for three days and three nights. But on the third day, Jesus is going to come forth. He's going to come out of that part of the dead, the paradise that he had promised the thief that he would be with him in. And he's going to come forth. And he is going to be victorious over the very thing that Satan, I think, has the dearest hold of, and that is death. You know, when we think of death, we can't think of death without Satan, thinking of Satan. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and of course, who was it that initially brought death? Satan. Christ, or God gave life to Adam and Eve. He gave them not only life, but he gave them the ability to have eternal life. He put the tree of life in the garden, and they could have, had they not sinned. It would seem, live there forever. But Satan came, and Satan brought death. You know, God had warned them. He said, listen, don't even eat of the forbidden fruit. Because in that day, dying you shall die, or you will die. You see, death is the product. It is the friend of Satan. You see, I believe that Satan, no doubt threw his hardest arsenal at Jesus. He crucified him on a cross. And he thought, no doubt, that he had Jesus subdued, but God had other plans. On the third day, Jesus arose. And so when Jesus says here, even the gates of the Hadean realm will not prevail against it. I think he's talking about his resurrection. You know, this idea of the gate is sort of interesting. And I don't want to make too much of it because I think sometimes we can draw from other passages in the scripture, in the Old Testament, parallels. And sometimes we can stretch the analogy. But when you think of a gate, what do you think of? When you go back to the Old Testament, the gate was everything in a city. Now, sure, they had walls. It had great parapets upon the edge of their walls where they could send their archers out to fight. But the gate was really the main thing. You had to protect the gate. And when the gate, again, was broken down, that's when the enemy encroached. But there's another picture, too. And that is when a city sent out an army, it sent it out from the gate. In other words, the gate demonstrated not only protection, but it demonstrated a freedom as well. Jesus says, listen, the gates of Hades, that which would lock me in forever in death, will not prevail against my plan. You see, Satan and his armies, if you will, we can picture it this way, could not enter into that great point of death and keep Jesus there. Now I realize we're taking some license with our description tonight because we don't really know all what it's about and what it looks like. But nonetheless, Jesus could not be held in Hades. In fact, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter stood up in Acts chapter 2 and began to preach, he goes to the very idea that Jesus was not left in Hades, neither did his flesh see corruption. You see, Jesus came forth, powerful, out of that Hadean realm. Now, Jesus had raised others from the dead, such as Lazarus. But they were going to die again. But Jesus came forth as the first fruits, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, of those that slept. Jesus rose to never die again. And so he sits now eternally, forever, at the right hand of the throne of God. His work is finished. In fact, he is sitting down. He will never die. And isn't it a wonderful blessing tonight to know that our Savior, the one that promised to build his church, will never die. His organization will never die. You know, once in a while when I talk about church history, people say, well, do you think the church, you know, maybe died out somewhere in the Middle Ages or in the Dark Ages? No. Now, I don't know exactly where the church went. Maybe it went underground. Some people believe that it was always in existence through the seed principle. That very well may be. But the point is, is that the kingdom that Christ established was an eternal kingdom. Death would never prevail against it. Time would never prevail against it. History would never prevail against it. As long as there are people today who are willing to give their hearts and minds to Jesus because that's the the territory really. You know, a kingdom, and I'm getting now into another subject, but the kingdom really is in reality composed of four things. It has to have a king. It has to have subjects. It has to have a territory, and it has to have a wall. You know, the territory of Christ's kingdom is our heart. And as long as there are people who are willing in humble submission to give their lives to Jesus Christ, like Peter was, though foible and though in in time made many mistakes, the kingdom is secure. And I believe that God will never allow a time while this earth goes on for the kingdom to die. Well, let's go on very quickly because Jesus says, I will then give you the keys of the kingdom. Now, we've already talked about gates. And I guess this leads into the next thought. But what do keys do? Now, Jesus is going to give Peter the keys of the kingdom. You know, when you're in Rome, by the way, and you wander around and you look at the opulent wealth of uh, the organization that builds the Vatican and, of course, St. Peter's Basilica and all the other great churches, they're beautiful by man's standards. But almost every time, in fact, I suppose every time you see a statue of Peter, he has keys in his hand. Now, of course, was Jesus saying, Peter, I'm going to give you some physical keys Now, of course, they portray the keys in Peter's hands because they believe that Peter is the divine authority from from God. They believe he is the vicar on earth or the one that is God's spokesperson. No Jesus is that. But what are these keys that Jesus speaks of? I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Well, you know, really, when you think about it, keys do two things. You know, when I go home, I unlock the door. Keys allow entrance. But then, of course, if I'm inside, I can lock the door, too, with the same key. So keys either allow or prohibit entrance. But I think in this case, the context, and as we know, of Peter, I think his role in the church is going to be one of unlocking. In other words, Jesus is going to give Peter a primal role, a basic role, but yes, a primary role. In the unlocking of the kingdom. Now it's not that Jesus is giving Peter a greater position necessarily in the church. In fact, the other apostles had the same keys. In fact, we have the key today, the scripture that unlocks the plan of salvation. But it was Peter who physically and very uh, verbally would stand up literally on the day of Pentecost and preach. And what happened? As Peter took that key, the key of the gospel. The key to the mysteries of heaven that Paul would later on speak of in Ephesians 4. As he took the key and he unlocked the door to the church, people poured in. 3,000 were baptized on that day. And from that point on, this church began to spread, uh, you know, just geometrically or, or exponentially, I suppose. And it was a wonderful time in the opening of the doors of the kingdom. Well, you know, Peter had that job not only in Acts 2, but as I mentioned a moment ago, in Acts 10. In Acts 10, he receives the call to go down to the Gentiles. The Gentiles, of course, at this point were not part of that church that Jesus was establishing. They were outcasts. They weren't even part of God's people in the Old Testament. They were the ones who were the ones out there in the in the uh, in the darkness of sin. But now, through the gospel. Peter goes and he preaches and the household of Cornelius is converted and from there on as you read the book of Acts you'll find others like Paul making the missionary journeys that open up the gospel to even us today. And you know I'm glad that happened because I dare say that most of us in this audience are Gentiles. We don't trace our lineage back to Abraham We don't trace our lineage back to the physical lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the nation of Israel. We are Gentiles, and yet we, through the keys of the kingdom, the gospel, have been allowed to enter in and be part of that relationship with the Son of God, with deity, and be part of that institution that Jesus says, I will build on the truth that I am the Son of God. And that is a wonderful thought tonight. Well, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Another way that this could be translated is whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth or allow on earth or uh, disallow on earth will have already been in heaven. The point here is, though, is that Jesus is not telling Peter... You can make up your own rules. He's not giving Peter the right to speak by inspiration ex cathedra just because. But rather he is saying, Peter, listen, you are going to teach what heaven reveals. What has already been decided in heaven. Now, how do we know that? Well, of course, all you have to do is go and look at Jesus' promise. You remember right before Jesus went back to heaven in John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus told the apostles that he would send the Holy Spirit And the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth, bring all things to their remembrance. And, of course, allow them to use the keys of the gospel in a way that would bring others to salvation. And what they taught began then to be that which the church followed and continued to follow. And today, the true church continues to follow that today. That's the reason, again, the passage I noted a moment ago. You'll hear me coming back to this passage numerous times. Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And of course, it is the apostles' doctrine that was inspired literally by the one who built his church upon the fact that he is the Son of God. And so, while there are so many other things and so many other nuances and so many other little rabbit trails we might look look at in this great passage in Matthew 16, basically what we have is we have Jesus graduating his apostles. Now, it's going to get tough after this. He's going to send them out literally to some some of them to die for the cause. But he brings them to Caesarea Philippi. They confess that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They then are commissioned uh, later on to go into all the world with that knowledge that it is the authority of Jesus, the kingship authority, that his church will be founded well, those are the thoughts this evening. And again, we're so uh, privileged to be part of the Lord's kingdom, the church tonight. Well, how do we get into the church? How do we become a part of that called out body that the New Testament speaks of and that Jesus promised to build? Well, how do we do that? We obey the gospel. We do what they did on the day of Pentecost. You know, on the day of Pentecost, they heard the gospel, didn't they? Peter preached. In fact, He told them that they, with wicked hands, had crucified the Lord of glory. They heard the gospel. They believed the gospel. They believed the message about how Jesus had not been left in the Hadean realm, how he had uh, rose over uh, all obstacles. They repented of their sins. We know that because they cried out. And, of course, they were willing to be baptized for the remission of their sins. You see, it's in the waters of baptism that we have our sins washed away. You know, Peter says it's not the putting in the way of the dirt of our bodies or the filth of the flesh, but it's the answer of a good conscience before God as we in faith step out actively and obey God in salvation and baptism. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information,